And today I will be preaching for you out of John chapter 1, beginning with verse 6 to verse 18. Hear now the very word of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come this day, this Christmas Eve, this Lord's Day, this exciting Lord's Day where we come and remember the birth of Christ, we ask that you would impart upon us this day a gift, a gift of your grace through your spirit and word that we would get to know you more fully through your son by the hearing of your word. We pray that you would bless this time together of worship, worship in your word, the worship of the word, the worship of Jesus Christ. Help us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If some people that know me would look at my life in detail, you might think that I would have some definitely hard leanings toward Puritanism because I like a lot of the things that they practiced and they preached, the things that were centered in his word. But one of the things that the Puritans were very cautious of was the celebration of Christmas. And over the years, my love and my intensity and desire to celebrate Christmas has Increased, And so it would contrast, I think, with 
the Puritan thinking and not that they did not have good reasons to maybe temper the kind of celebrations that the church was doing at that particular time. And they have maybe good reasons to maybe show caution and take a break. But as I, in my particular ministry that I have been graced with and have the benefit of, of presenting the word to you, I have seen that this particular account in the scriptures of the coming of the Son of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the center point of all of history. And it is exciting that we are able to, with the world, have this festal shout. I'm so glad that we hit that psalm today. That we have this festal shout of celebration that some people don't even really know what it's about. But for those who believe, those who hold on to the name of Jesus Christ, this is the highlight of all that we have to hope for. But even still, even with that, I have to admit, and I would probably admit with many of you all, that there are things about this holiday season that overtake our minds and our thoughts. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but what do you think may be the top three things that come to mind when people think of the Christmas season? No. <laughs> You didn't have to answer out loud, but that is one of the ones that I was thinking of, is that people think of gifts. People, I was listening to a song, and I was trying to remember which song it was, but it was talking about the joys of Christmas, and it was a secular song, but it was talking about the joy of seeing the happiness and, on the faces of children. A lot of times we think about children. When we think about Christmas, there's something that our minds gravitate toward about the joy of Christmas for children. And then on the opposite end for the adults, one of the things that I think we think a lot about during this time of year is the expense, about the money, about the cost. Well, today I have a sermon for you, and I promise you that I have thought it through to be a biblical one, but my three points to this sermon today are those potentially in your own minds, the top three things that a lot of us both Christian and non-believers think about this time of the year, which is gifts, which is children, which is expense. And I would also want to add in there, I said three points, it was really supposed to be four because I forgot my first one. Celebration, a party, doing festal activity. So the four things that I want to kind of merge in and see, because this particular passage, which is one of the center passages of the Christmas season, what it is really ultimately all about, does talk about this celebration, about a festal highlight of something to celebrate. When we do celebration, we don't typically just have celebration for celebration's sake. We are uplifting something. And so my first point will be about celebration. And then secondly, kind of merged in the second and the third is that we are going to see here that there is this tremendous gift and that this particular great gift that has been given to God's people put us in this position of being those who have the right to be called the children of God. That the gift provides a privilege of being able to be children. A lot of people think sometimes about Christmas of how when it gets when you get older you lose that 
Christmas feeling of being childlike in that regard. But the true essence of Christmas is that we get to be called children of God. And then lastly, I want to talk about value. I want to talk about the expense. When we think about expense, we think about how much things are going to cost. And I want to highlight that this gift is the greatest value, the greatest expense given for our sakes. So we see here in this particular passage is that it's, in the, it's kind of neat and it could be confusing for especially me when I was a kid that the book of John is starting out by talking about a John and it's not a John that it's himself. It's a different John. Very early on, we see in verse six, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this particular John became known as John the baptizer or for short, John the Baptist. So it's not the same John who wrote this, who was an apostle, but he was a prophet, the last and greatest prophet ever to prepare the way for this great celebration of Christmas. We see here highlighted in these first three verses that John, he really wants to be very clear that he is not the light. He is not what we are celebrating that John's primary purpose is the preparation, the celebration, and even the joy and the delight of the coming of the light. In many ways, John the Baptist is like Christmas because Christmas is not about the celebration in of itself. Now, granted, for the world, that is probably is the case, that it's partying for partying purposes, but this season, this particular time, is supposed to be the celebration and the pointing toward Jesus Christ. And John is very emphatic about that. And I think that his emphasis of why he is not the one to be considered the reason to celebrate is a good lesson for us that it has to be reminded to us that we are not doing this for our own sake. That we are actually, as he says, seeking to become lesser as we do much to increase the celebration of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is maybe the most greatest leader in the celebration of Christmas. We see that John was sent, that his purpose was something that was directly from God, that he didn't just come up with this idea himself. And as we see in the narrative in Luke particularly, that he has this calling to come to point and to prepare the way for the receiving of Jesus Christ, for the hearing of his declaration, for the celebration and the following after Jesus Christ. It was very clear and very emphatic in this particular passage that he is a witness about the light, and that he is not the light, but that his main purpose in this particular ministry of celebration is so that people might believe. Again, he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness about the light. We should get that very clearly here in this beginning, is that this is not a story that's going to be about John but that John was a very integral part, that God delights in sending people 
to prepare us and to help us to see him more clearly. You might ask yourself, why did he need to send John? Why could he have not just sent Jesus and that the the power of Jesus alone would just come and overwhelm people and that that would be enough to highlight who he is? I don't really have the answer to that question. I'm not sure why God did it that way, but we do see very clearly throughout his scriptures that he has sent people to help us to see, to help us to celebrate, to help us to ultimately believe in what he has said. And I believe that in the providence of the Lord, even though we are not commanded in Scripture to take a particular time of the year to celebrate Christmas, but that since we do have this opportunity that comes through the historical reception and in celebration of the coming of the Lord, which we should when the greatest thing ever happened in the history of mankind 2,000 years ago, that's a great reason for us to stop what we're doing and spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to celebrate. But if we're going to have that particular opportunity, we need to be like John. We need to learn how to celebrate Christmas like John celebrated. Jesus Christ himself said that John was the greatest prophet. And what is the great prophet to do? His, the prophet is to point to Jesus Christ. Could you argue with me, and I hope that you wouldn't even attempt to in this particular case, would you argue with me that Christmas shouldn't point to Jesus more than anything else in the world? That's an easy position for me to take, and I would assume that everyone would get behind that. And I think that if John is the greatest prophet, and you could say that John is the greatest pointer to Jesus Christ that ever lived, that was ever born of a woman's womb, Jesus said, then we can get a lot of pointers from John and how we are to celebrate. That our Christmases should end with people seeing more of Jesus than seeing of us. Than even seeing of our celebration. When, we're, when all the mess is done and there's wrapping paper everywhere and there's knots tied in every single strand of light, it should be that People are remembering and seeing Jesus more. I want to go a little deeper in this, and I want us to think more about this ministry of John, because I think it will help not only bring a greater emphasis, but embellish and encourage and strengthen and magnify our own celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ. If you would, turn to your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to read for you out of verses 25 through 26. This is where it says, when John himself says that he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. But I think it's important to see the full context of this as we go further into this passage because John, the gospel writer here, is wanting us to think about the ministry of John quite a bit. And he's wanting us to see this, these images of light and life but also see John as an example here. So in verse 35 of chapter, excuse me, verse 25 of of chapter 3, it says that now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, 
He is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We see here that there's this discussion between John's disciples and a Jew about purification because John's particular ministry in this preparation and celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ was to open the door to the party, to actually point out to people the very purpose of what Jesus was coming for, and that was to save sinners from their sin. And so he was preaching repentance. He was preaching repentance and baptizing people, showing the symbolism of the purification of their sins that is going to come from the promises of God. And so that's what he had been doing. He had been doing it so much. And his disciples, the people who were following the teachings of John the Baptist, and another Jew was talking about this, and they were thinking, wait a minute, this guy that came and was with you, the one that you say that you were bearing witness about, he, his ministry is overtaking yours. People are beginning to be followers of him. His disciples are baptizing other people. And it's getting to be all about him. And he was like, that's great. (laughs) That's exactly my joy is now complete. This is the very point of my ministry. The very point of my ministry is to point everyone to Jesus. I was just opening the door. And then when Jesus came through the door, he's basically echoing the same thing that John the Baptist was preaching. John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus Christ came in and preached the same particular sermon, but then said, I am the fulfillment of that. And John's like, this is the man. This is the God man. This is the bridegroom that is going to take the bride, going to take the church to the place of greatest purification because it's going to be him who washes them from their sin. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That should be our motto of ministry in everything that we do, particularly at Christmas, but also in every element of our life. Are you a father? If you're a father, Your job as the father should be decreasing as you are promoting in your sons and daughters to be brothers and sisters in Christ. That their focus should be thinking more about the heavenly father and their brotherhood that has been established through Jesus Christ. And our particular roles of fatherhood become more and more diminished as the heavenly father becomes greater and brighter in their life. Are you a wife? If you're a wife, your whole job is to become lesser and lesser to the magnificent reality of what Jesus Christ has done for his bride. Everything that in our life should, all wives' lives should be pointing that particular element. And that the more that they are increasing 
the highlighting of what Jesus has done for his bride, then the greater that you are at doing what you're called to do as a wife. Any role that you have, whether it's an employee or an employer, brother or sister, husband or mother, son or daughter, all of those particular roles that you have should be becoming more and more decreased in your time and in your ministry of life as you are increasing the glory of Jesus Christ. Continuing with what John said here, he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is on earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet, no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John is very clear, and he's having to remind his own disciples, people that were hearing him teach over and over again, it is not about me, it is about Jesus Christ. And so that should be the case in every institution, in every relationship, and definitely in every celebration that we have, is to magnify what Jesus Christ is, and who he is in light of what the Father's love for him is, And that we should understand that for those who believe in this preaching and proclamation about Jesus Christ, has this access to the Spirit without measure. As I was going through this particular passage, and I was thinking a lot about John's ministry, and I was thinking about it in light of this Christmas season, I was thinking about those little Russian dolls. Anybody, has everybody seen those little Russian dolls that... You know, you have this big Russian doll, and when you open it up, they usually kind of, they're kind of cut in half, and you open it up, and what's inside? Another version of that, a smaller version of that, and you keep opening it up, and you keep opening it up, and you get all the way down to this little small Russian doll. And you know that the, the gift that you might receive, that, that it really is like packaging, and, you, and you're going further and further into the packaging. Well, I was thinking about the ministry of John the Baptist of being an inverted idea. Now, you're going to have to follow me here. It's kind of something you have to imagine. The inversion of a Russian doll. So you have John the Baptist. And he's saying, I'm not the gift. I am not the light. I am not the Christ and the salvation. But I'm here to point you into it. And so as you go into the ministry of John the Baptist and you open up what he has to say, it's instead of having a smaller version, you actually have a larger version. All right, so you're like, wait a minute, how does that work? Just work with me here. And the, and the more you go further into what he's saying, it gets larger and larger. So much that John is getting smaller and smaller as we see more and more of what he is presenting. That the gift that he has to give, the gift that God sent him to give to mankind is to become lesser so that we may see the grand glory of Jesus Christ. That's the point and purpose 
of John the Baptist's ministry that is his celebration. And so our celebration should be more and more like that so that people would begin to see the true light of Jesus Christ. We see in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This should tell us a little bit about two things. On one hand, as we see that Jesus Christ is this grander, greater, and truer light, and greater hope of life and in all things, that we're being reminded that this Jesus Christ, the one that John the Baptist is pointing to, and he plays around with these words, he's saying that the one that came after me is actually before me because he ranks before me because he's always been before me. There's this little play on words for us to understand. John the Baptist is older. He's older than Jesus. He's the older cousin. And he's been preaching before anyone else even knew about Jesus Christ. He's already brought a name for himself. And he's saying that this one who was younger than me, the one who was coming after me, the one that even him, he's kind of, his mind is blowing at the same time when Jesus says, come and, and let me be baptized. And he's like, whoa, this, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Because he knows that this one who was coming, this Lamb of God, was before him. He actually, the world was made through him. And that the one who the world was made through has now come into the world. And we see that this is magnifying Jesus and how great he is. But then we're also seeing this contrast of how Jesus is going to be received in his ministry and it says they did not recognize him. They did not know him. They did not receive him. Even his own people, who should have been in preparation and in celebration and partying about the coming of the Messiah, they didn't even notice when Jesus shows up to the party that he was there. So as we think about our particular calling and celebrating not only Christmas, but celebrating each Lord's Day and, and also proclaiming the gospel to our families and to everyone we know, that there is this nature that even though that we are going into the world and calling out to people like John the Baptist to come to the celebration of the coming of the Savior of the world, that there is this reality that came even since the time that Jesus came on the earth that people are not going to recognize that there is this great reason to celebrate. They're going to not only not receive him, they will reject him. This has been a sentiment and a part of his ministry from the very beginning. But even at that, we see this grace in that one line there where it says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, 
spent a lot of time on that particular portion of my study trying to put my head around that. What does that exactly mean to everyone? Well, it means to everyone, and it has a multi-layered different meaning. It means that not only was it for the Jews, but it is also for the Gentile. But not only is it for the believing Jew or the believing Gentile, it is this common grace that comes to everyone. And I think that Christmas is one of the best times of the year for us to see this common grace. People are partying right now. They don't even know who Jesus is and they're having a good time. They have a reason to celebrate. They're getting all excited about seeing lights and about doing particular things and giving gifts and having great food. And they don't even recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the primary person of this particular party. And if you think about it, Christmas is just a representation of all of life there. Remember, the world was made through him. All things were made through him. It's all about him. This world is his, and he made it, and people don't even really know who God is. But they're living, and they're loving, and they're enjoying We see in the scriptures that there is this concept between this special salvific grace and also this common grace. And that Jesus embodies all of it because it is through him in which the world was created, but it is also through him in which those are saved, that he is the king and God over both special and common grace. That he is the ultimate light. He is the ultimate gift for everyone. Everyone gets the gift of Jesus Christ in some way, though not everyone gets the gift of salvation that only comes to those who believe in his name. We see a a definition of common grace given by John Hodge. John Hodge was a 19th century Reformed theologian And here's a good definition of common grace. It says, The Holy Spirit, as the spirit of truth, of holiness, and of life in all forms, is present with every human mind, enforcing truth, restraining from evil, exciting to good, and imparting wisdom or strength, when, where, and in all what measure seemeth to him good. That is what in theology is called common grace. Anything that is true, anything is good, anything that is right comes from the Father that also comes through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that his appearing and his preaching and his ministry was a highlighting so that we may actually know him. And even though if we do not know him, it still exudes from him. That all things good come from him, and that all things that are to be enjoyed of that good are because of Jesus Christ. In this political season, I, I get into it. I mean, I've just, just been one of those things. I get more into politics than I do into sports, and I listen to people, and I, I'm a student of the Constitution, and I've been a student of history, and I love getting into this, and I love listening to people, and I go, nah, that's not true, that's not constitutional. And that's definitely not Christian. And then what I get really amazed at is when there are some particular people, and there's very few of these people, that are able to articulate great truths 
about government, even about life, even about morality, and, and all kinds of other truths. And when those people are not believers, I'm just like, whoa, you got it so, you got it all right, but you're just missing out on the most important component of where that comes from. And I, and I like those kind of people. And I go, Lord, just open their eyes. They, you think that you almost want to say they're almost there, but really they're, they're still so far away because they do not believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Jennifer, I have a friend that is an artist, and this particular artist does the same thing. The paintings and the, just the, the message that comes from the art is just like, oh, there's got to be a creator. There's got to be a wondrous creator. And this particular artist is an atheist. And you think, how do you do this? How do you get so close in that beauty and the richness of all creation and not even get it that someone had to create this, that there was a greater artist with a capital A that made this happen? That's what common grace is. And it is embodied in the fullness of Jesus Christ. But the particular message in ministry is and though we can, just like I do with those who are at work or unbelievers, we celebrate more food this time of the year. We have more fun, decorative, and just a cheer about our fellowship and the gathering. But I, my prayer for them is that they would know what this is all about and where this all comes from. John Murray defines common grace. He says that common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. He puts a little bit more edge to that definition. He's saying, when we think about the reality that we are all in sin and that this world is undeserving of any of this, that even this common grace that is received is a true grace. Because, because of our sin, even that is undeserved. We see this in the scripture. Paul declares this common grace when he says that God did good by giving rains from heaven in fruitful seasons and satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. That's in Acts 14. Jesus himself says that God makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5. Also, we see that the Father is described as being kind to the ungrateful and the evil in Luke chapter 6 and 16. We see in, in John's proclamation, there in that last statement in chapter 3, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That means the wrath of God is already due him. The wrath of God is already due to all of us. And that even this common grace that comes upon those who are undeserving, it, we need to remember that apart from that salvific grace that comes through the gift of Jesus Christ and believing in his name, that we are left in that judgment. Because not only is Jesus Christ 
the greatest gift, but it is the name of the only Son of God that is the most important part. It is the, the value of the gift that we see that the Father so loved the world there also in John chapter 3 that he gave his only begotten Son. See, we see here in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the Word became flesh. That this which was before John, this which has existed from all time, who has been in great fellowship with the Father, who is one with the Father, became begotten. That this is the greatest value of any gift. That the one who did not have to become flesh to be glorious and to be in existence, but to be in the fullness of who he is, in obedience, he became flesh. That is the greatest value of any ever gift that we've ever had. And this great value, this great wonder, dwelt among us. And in through Jesus Christ, we see his glory. It says the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw that in the last verse of Joy to the World, that he reigns with truth and grace. When we think about Jesus being the Logos, the Word, the truth, the epitome of all reason and logic and order, we see that that is the greatest epitome of all things, but that in Jesus Christ that he rules not only in his great truth, but he is the merger of both truth and grace, that by being that which was made flesh and dwelt among us, and that he came and he came to the world and shines light into this world of darkness, that that makes him the epitome of all grace. He is the epitome of all righteousness and truth and justice. And he is the greatest of all grace. All in one. Because he and the Father are one. And we see this glory in him. He was not just before John. He was with the Father forever. And it says here in this passage that it is through him that we have this fullness, this completeness. Again, this, I can't find good words to just magnify. I try to use words like epitome or the highest echelon of all things. But basically we see here that John, he says, grace upon grace. It's just overlapping that this grace, that this gift is a gift of gifts. It's kind of like in Hebrews when we were, you know, kept talking about the writer of the Hebrews, just saying that he's the greatest, the priest, he's the highest, most superior, you know, just trying to get the right kind of words to magnify. And what John does here, he says that Jesus is grace upon grace. He's super grace. He's the greatest grace. 
And when we think about how in the fullness of him and to the glory of the Father, that it's just all about him. It's all embodied in him. It's grace to the thousandth power or the millionth power, if that's even such a thing. And then John reminds us that Moses was like John. Moses was a pointer to the party. God gave the law through Moses. He sent Moses to God's people to present law and grace. He was there to save God's people from their slavery. And he gave them the law so that they may get to know the Lord. So there was a, even a grace there. But Moses was just a shadow. That he was just a preparer of the real party of what is to come. That Moses was pointing to this one who is the source of all grace and truth. So even Moses was grace. John the Baptist, when he was preaching repentance, was a type of grace. He was opening the door and he is pointing to the hope. But he says, just as Moses is at the transfiguration, it says that Moses disappeared along with Elijah and all the disciples could see is Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. It is all centered in him. He is the fullness of of all grace, and of all truth. And then we see here in closing that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's kind of a complicated sentence. Seems simple, no one has ever seen God. It's like, got that, the only God, who are we talking about now? Are we talking about the Father or are we talking about the Son? It says, who is at their Father's side? Oh, we're talking about Jesus? And it says, he has made him known. So yeah, we're talking about Jesus. But it sounded like we were talking about the Father. And the answer is yes and yes. That he is the only God, but he's separate from the Father. And our minds blow up. It's like our brains can't handle that. It's like you're saying in one minute, you're saying, you're talking about the Father being God, but then when you were talking about God, then you started talking about the Son. When did you make that transition? And you go, I didn't make the transition. It was always talking about the Father and the Son being God. They are of the same substance. Kids, do you remember us talking about that? Being of the same substance? I know that Maharus a couple of Sundays ago talked about what I think St. Nicholas, when he was maybe walking through the halls of the Council of Nicaea, I, I would assume there were halls because you kind of think of Echo Halls, he would be going, Ho, 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 homoousios. Because homoousios means same substance. And it's not just same substance with the Father, which is pretty amazing in of itself. But when he became, when the word became flesh, he became same substance with us for those who believe. It's a crazy Latin word, but it is where all of our hope lies. That because he is God with the Father, but separate from the Father, and he is with us, but separate from us. He's not just separate from us in person, but he's separate from us in that he did not sin. So that he could save us from our sin. 
I was going to read the whole definition of Chalcedon to end today, and I'm like, you know, I think they, they may, I think they got the point. But I would encourage you to go back and read the definition of Chalcedon. It was a, a council that occurred almost a hundred years, a little over a hundred, a little less than a hundred years, right at a hundred years after the Council of Nicaea, where they put the definition of this. And you'll see that. You'll see this whole idea of same substance with the Father, but same substance with us, and it merges all together. And we see that came from this particular passage, which is what Christmas is all about. When a lot of people think about end times, and right now because of the politics of the world and the darkness of the world and the destruction that's going on around us and just the hate and the death, this particular moment of Jesus Christ being conceived in the womb was the beginning of the end. And it was not a negative thing. It was a very positive thing that Jesus came into the darkness and brought light so that he may bring salvation to the people that would believe in his rule and authority over sin. It says there in that particular verse, this is a Christmas verse for us to remember that the only God who is Jesus Christ who is at the Father's side, who is sitting at the right hand. At this particular moment, we're seeing the fullness of Jesus' ministry of both being conceived into flesh and being ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. In the middle of that, we have his life and his ministry and his, his suffering and his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection. But then we see his ascension and his reign. It all was coordinated and brought into being and initiated by word becoming flesh. So the only distinction is, are you in a place in the celebration of Christmas this year of being in common grace? If anyone happens to be listening to this recording, all of you all in the world who might come across in some weird way for some strange reason, who may find this particular message are you celebrating Christmas in common grace? You might get some really good prime rib or ham during Christmas, and you might get some really cool presents, and maybe some nice fuzzy pajamas, and some, see some pretty lights. But are you really even recognizing the great honoree of our party? which is Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus Christ? Do you believe what John said? And better yet, do you believe what Jesus himself said about himself when he says that I and the Father are one and that he did not come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world? Do we believe in his name? Do we believe that this season, this Christmas season, was the beginning and the end that our hope has come, that light has come into our darkness? First of all, do we even recognize that we're in the dark? Or like we see in John chapter 3, are we still in love with the darkness? The distinction between common grace and salvific grace is those who believe in his name that believe in the fullness of his ministry that our confession of faith talks about from not only his conception, but his ascension and his rule. The light has come into the world. The word has become flesh. And as the council of Nicaea, excuse me, as the council of Chalcedon said, 
that he came for us in our salvation. Remember John's sermon. Remember Jesus' sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray.